Hello and welcome to Conversations on the Avenue with me, Arslan Mohammed. In this edition, we're very excited to bring you an exclusive in-depth conversation with Dr. Cliff Lawson of London's Hayward Gallery on the new exhibition showing at Concrete at Altacal Avenue this month, entitled Adapt Survive, Notes from the Future. Adapt to Survive presents work by seven international artists, each of whom theorise in various ways on possible manifestations of the future. Through a rich blend of film, sculpture and text-based work, the exhibition takes a sometimes playful, sometimes sobering journey through the radical ideas of change and hybrid forms of architecture, biology, technology and language that are shaping our futures. The exhibition features pieces by Anne Lisegaard, Julian Charrier, Reina Ganal, Margarita Humeau, Bedware Williams, Andreas Angelikadakis, and Yumna Shala. And it was first exhibited at the Haywood Gallery in London at their Henny Project Space this spring. Now, an expanded version of that show marks the first time that a group show from the Henny Project Space has travelled internationally. And with its themes of futurism, innovation, radical creativity and ingenious ideas, it fits perfectly into the concrete exhibition space at the heart of Alsacal Avenue. So, without further ado, let's meet Dr. Cliff Lawson, who will walk us through the works on display with his insights, context and reflection. Hi Cliff, it's very good to have you with me. Um, let's begin with the idea behind the London Exhibition. So you're the curator of Adapt to Survive. What's the fundamental idea of the exhibition and why is this theme so relevant now? Yeah, well, this exhibition, uh, Adapt to Survive, Notes from the Future, uh, was presented um, in the Henny Project space at the Hayward Gallery in London, in, uh, opened in April of, of, of 2018. Um, and I guess that's a bit of a bit of a funny question why is the future so relevant now <laughs> as we as we hurtle through time and space the future is sort of always seems uh, relevant in some respect whether it's you know planning uh, planning on on where you're going to go on holiday or uh, you know what uh, how to how to get to work when you wake up but i think in particular i was i was detecting two general trends and and one is to do with society as a whole and the sort of future orientedness of society to an extent it, it seemed to be largely fueled by technology um, as we sort of integrate more and more tech into our daily lives um, but it also um, and perhaps not unrelated um, seemed to be the, um, the drive the prerogatives of various uh, societal organizations and institutions um, from universities uh, to private companies, uh, but also governments, to look forward, um, not just in terms of planning, um, but in terms of trying to make some um, intelligent guesswork about uh, where they they want to be or how they want to define themselves or be seen um, in the future. Uh, and so parallel to that um, uh, general societal trend, artists uh, are responding or thinking along those same lines, uh, looking at the future, but um, often in um, more critical and complex ways uh, than are sometimes articulated um, by the other, the other uh, places that I mentioned. 
So in, in essence, it could be that artists are looking at what could be the negative impacts of very, very strident tech policies undertaken by governments around the world, that sort of thing. Well, I think artists in general love to ask questions. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a real strength of, of art is you have the, the freedom in a way to explore, to be inquisitive, to ask questions, um, and to try and understand, uh, if not reveal in a different way, something about the world around us. So if you're looking to the future or um, to the present, to how things in the present are going to affect us in the future, um, you can ask some pretty weighty and and hefty questions. Um, You can pose interesting questions uh, through art uh, that... Um, you don't need to necessarily answer if you're if you're not you know filling out a strategic report for the next financial year or something like that. Absolutely. And so let's expand on this a little. What what would you say are the questions that have revealed themselves to be at the heart of this show? Well, the, the exhibition Adapt to Survive um, brings together seven international artists, the work of those artists, um, with um, different uh, different questions, different views um, about the future, uh, and they they range quite a bit. Um, from architecture to language to societal structures, um, of course, to the environment. But what's interesting about this combination of artists is that within their artworks, um, they actually blend those different spheres and disciplines. Um, And so you have, uh, for example, in in one film by Andreas Angelodakis, you have a building which actually acts like an organism. And this isn't, you know, it's not a prediction for the future, but it's a, it's an interesting concept of maybe an imaginary future, um, where you have these hybrid forms moving into each other, um, sometimes enabled by technology, but sometimes not. We have a version of the show coming to Dubai. Why were, why were these particular works selected for the Dubai iteration of Adapt to Survive? Mm, well, I think the interesting thing about bringing the show to Dubai um, is that actually it's something of an expanded version <laughs> so the the show is actually um, a little bit bigger heading to concrete at Al Cal Avenue and that's uh, simply by virtue of the the gallery space is uh, is bigger uh, in Dubai um, so what we've been able to do with a couple of the works um, we've maintained the same artists so what you'll have is those same seven artists and uh, their explorations of the future but for a couple of them we've uh, swapped out for some some other artworks that are some more substantial artworks one of the artworks um, by Yumna Chlala um, which is a, a response in a way to the to the specific place of installation um, she'll do a site-specific version of her work for uh, concrete that's work which will be directly responding to Al-Sakal Avenue and the concrete space? Um, in terms of installation, yes. The, the exhibition uh, consists of a film, but also um, a configuration of um, abstract uh, uh, decals, if you will, um, that are applied to the building. So I'm working with her on how to present that specifically in the architecture of the gallery. In the show, uh, we have quite a variety of artists. So we start off with Anne Liesegaard, being featuring quite heavily on the Alcacal social media because I think it's such an intriguing mm-hmm. image, visual of this fox with a sort of slightly zany voice. Now, Time Machine, which is her piece here, what's, what's the story of Time Machine? So, Anne Lislegard's work, Time Machine, in title actually quotes um, H.G. Wells' Time Machine. It's a sort of throwback to this piece of, um, well, then fiction <laughs> that H.G. Wells, H.G. Wells wrote in 1895. Pretty pretty uh, far callback. But this novel is actually considered one of the first works of science fiction. 
um, in, in which the the idea of time travel is first brought forward, and that's that's pretty um, pretty amazing thing to think about these days. Um, so the first time that somebody actually thought you could cross time. Is that really the first um, time in, in the arts and literature that the concept of time travel had, had appeared? Well, I think within the context of science fiction, I think you could probably argue in some, uh, some other perhaps religious text that you might, you might get a loose version of that. But in terms of, in terms of genre and the way that I think we think of time travel now, where you've got a machine that sort of hurdles you through time, time and space, um, that's the first time that that's articulated. Well, I mean, and um, in title... Her piece quotes that work, um, but the piece itself um, takes the shape of a sculpture with a, um, a computer rendered a, a 3D projection inside of it, um, and that is of a fox, and it's this uh, this fantastic creature that you describe as being um, visible in relation to um, the the exhibition's uh, poster and so forth. This fox uh, speaks to you, and it, it's quite um, enthralling in the sense of you, you sort of stand in front of it, and you can actually have a, an animal talking to you for a while. But on the other hand, it's quite frightening because it's um, it's uncanny, but it's also a character um, that speaks to you in a very sort of garbled and fragmented way. And it's um, it seems as though this fox has travelled uh, backwards in time to meet you from the future um, and has uh, some message and some some text, but that's all been quite um, corrupted uh, en route, maybe. Oh, I see. And why why did she choose a fox? Is it some sort of dystopian future where just the foxes survive or something like that? Uh, not entirely sure on, on the specific choice of animal for, for Anne, um, but uh, certainly does the job of, um, you know, standing up on, on its uh, front legs and... Uh, and giving a direct address. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing this one. Next up, Julien Charrier, and he Ooh. has metamorphism. Metamorphism, that's it. And uh, this is something which is pretty much focused on natural resources, the, and taking as an example uh, the minerals that we use in our iPhones and laptops and all the tech that surrounds us. Yeah, Julian um, actually showed uh, metamorphism in uh, London. Um, so he's an artist um, in uh, Dubai who we have slightly different... Uh, work by. So he'll present actually a work that he first presented at the Venice Biennial, and it takes the shape of these large columns. It's an installation, it's a sculpture, an installation comprised of salt from extremely large salt uh, flat in Bolivia. They sort of forecast a time in the future when we are mining, 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 mining for natural resources, largely for elements for technology. A time where this, you know, natural, beautiful, natural salt flat um, sort of has the uh, has the foundations pulled out from under it in the sense, in terms of the, there being a cavity uh, where we've gone in for for lithium, which we commonly use nowadays for batteries for for every for to power everything, all these mobile devices. So um, Julian's uh, work, you know, hover on a very similar theme of our relationship to the planet um, and the sort of rabid consumption of natural resources. They're quite bleak predictions of a future where we've exhausted all the natural resources that are available to us. On the one, on the one hand, um, they, they can be read as that. I mean, I think on the other, they're quite mysterious um, and alluring. What Julian does is often present us with some 
particular object or representation of an object, which itself has a very intricate and decided sculptural form. So you go in there and there's something very intriguing about it. It's not repulsive to a start. It's intriguing and it invites exploration. And then you start to unpick these narratives and start to understand the kinds of questions that he's asking. So it's almost aesthetically complete in itself as being an incredibly attractive, engaging item. And then once you start to engage with it, you start finding more and more depth and, like you said, narratives there. I'd say it treads that line, balances that on that line. Next up, we have Rainier Ganal's film I Hate Karl Marx. Now, this is something where we are looking at the political, sort of geopolitics, really, isn't it? It's a world where China is the dominant political power. Uh, countries have gone communist and everyone's speaking Chinese. So it's a sort of something which is predicting happening in the future if we take sort of, you know, the political trends that we see today to really rather crazy extreme. Mm, mm. I guess it depends who you ask how crazy it is. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's sort of really, like, take, but you know what I mean? So sort of like taking yeah, a political yeah. infrastructure that we have now and then just sort of pushing it to just the limits of how that far could go. Um, Rainer, Rainer's, Rainer's film presents us with a, a very interesting snapshot of imagined future time. And what I, what I find fascinating about that is nowadays, when you talk to people about the political future, it tends to be a version of late capitalism. And Rainer provides us with a snapshot of what future under communism might look like. But he does so in a very tongue-in-cheek way. And the film is presented uh, as, a, as an episode in which uh, a German woman um, is uh, yelling in a, in a public street at a bust of Karl Marx, uh, and she—it's—it's it's a staged set, so she she's angry and she's yelling <laughs> at the statue for this short episode. And what you discover is that um, this world under communism uh, isn't the communism that she thought it was going to be, uh, a la a Marxist communism. It's Chinese communism, and so it has sort of that future has sort of fulfilled itself, but. In, in a halfway but not the fully expected way and what's happened in that process is um, she has actually lost her heritage and history because there's no it's not a German communism and so within this sort of outburst of emotion lots of irony and it, it's quite amusing because it seems disproportionate and obviously the statue is a bust so it doesn't respond at all <laughs> it just stares off into space but does ask some you know really interesting questions about uh, nationhood and about you know in the future uh, in terms of um, boundaries and, and histories and, um, and national histories to me on an initial reading communism i mean china is the only superpower in the world which is a communist state. It seems rather anachronistic. It's it's a philosophy rooted very much in the past, and it was an interesting choice, I thought, for uh, for this film. Mm, I think one of the interesting things as well, um, going along the way, is that you know, in particular in the UK, you know, obviously every country has its own political history um, and its own understanding of other countries' political histories. And in the UK here, you know, the Communist Party and the this left the right political spectrum it wasn't that long ago that it was i guess you could think of as more balanced in terms of the majority of of mindshare political views so it's a, it's an interesting one to 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 place in in different countries and 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 see how people respond to it i, I think what's interesting about film is is what a what a personal snapshot it is so these are big geopolitical issues but the film is entirely about this woman's individual response and her individual situation next we have Marguerite Humeau. And I really like the sound of this. This is the sphinx-like 
structure, which is talking about uh, state control, observation, surveillance, and so on. Um, Marguerite uh, is, a, is a really interesting uh, thinker and artist. She works with she works with civilizations, if one can say that, um, with the idea of civilizations and the idea of um, sort of epochs and um, big mythical creatures. So the, her, her piece, Harry II, which is in the exhibition, is a sculpture that combines different aspects. I mean, it's almost a, a collage of a sculpture. So it, it contains bits and pieces from raptor fencing, uh, which is a sort of security fencing. So they're spiky, spiky bubbles, but cast in a, in a sort of artificial human flesh. It's crowned on the top by a, a three-headed Wing, wing-like creature. It's almost some sort of falcon or eagle, but has has three heads. And the the piece is in a way abstract, but it sort of calls to the future, to a place where the the concerns that we have with security, with surveillance, with the way that we understand ourselves in relation to higher beings, um, is actually a a common way of thinking across civilizations. And she often goes back to. Um, the figure of the Sphinx being this uh, mythical creature that's comprised of other creatures uh, who in the one, on the one hand are um, predators, some of whom um, might kill or feast on humans, but combined all together into a mythical creature, a creature which is both predatory but also protector in, in some views. Um, so she, she works with these sort of hybrid forms to look at um, what are essentially sort of societal structures on, on belief uh, and, and articulates those in a sculptural form. Belief in the power of these mythical creatures, you mean? Well, in an early case, it, I mean, it would be belief in, a, in the power of a mythical creature. Um, you might articulate that in the present by a sort of belief in uh, technology and somehow maybe in the future those two become intertwined again. Um, it's it's certainly a belief in our place in the universe, in, you know, in terms of how we relate to superior beings or, or, or an inferior being. And you mentioned earlier this is something which is common to civilizations and societies' relationship with these icons and uh, strength. Well, I think you you do you do find that, and if you look at different uh, different mythologies, um, different religions, the the idea of how power is manifest can be both terrifying, but also. Uh, tremendously powerful and embracing and it's always this sort of double ed- double-edgedness. You have to include a lot of things in there. You have to include a sense of overwhelming power and an edge of menace uh, in that there's an ability to enforce that power and then also a sort of reassuring um, sense of by submitting to this an ideology that you are safe and secure. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I, I think what, what fascinates her is that that common structure of belief and how that is actually common to lots of societies, um, but also lots of different civilizations. So we now move to Wales and Bedwell Williams with Tira Moore. And what the note I have here is that it's an imaginary megacity in rural North Wales. That's the note, yes. <laughs> and that is what you get in the film. Yeah, the, it's, a, it's a film. It's a 20, 20 minute long film. Depicts um, in uh, very highly rendered computer detail this fictional megacity in rural North Wales. Through the course of 20 minutes, you actually will see the city go through a full day and night cycle, um, so 24 hours. And Bedware has worked with a um, computer graphics company um, on, the, on, the, on the CG aspects of this. 
so that all the, the lighting reflections and environment simulation are all accurate. What was it about this particular work that really caught your interest and made it made you want to include it in the show? Well, I think it's entirely engrossing, actually. You, you sort of sit there, and the, and the striking thing is that you see this megacity and it's completely unpopulated. That's uncanny. Um, but for the lack of people, you then have the, the voice of this narrator who takes you through um, some of the snippets of people who occupy the city. And you learn things about city planning, about the intent um, when they were putting this thing together. Uh, you learn about other people who you know, carry on their business, go to the shops, they go to work. All these things are familiar. Well, anybody who lives in a city, but even not, because uh, it's daily living. But it all sits on this rather uncanny, um, perhaps uncomfortable um, moment of what's at present a very beautiful, pristine, natural area, but with, um, you know, imagined with giant skyscrapers plonked down in and around the, the lake. So it sounds, it sounds like almost like a very futuristic undermilk wood, almost. Well, I think, <laughs> I think um, you know, cities are expanding and the, and the world is becoming more and more dense, um, and it's not an uncommon story. And it's something that we all have to think about whether actually we, we live in those particular cities or not. So the next work is Andreas Angelidakis, and this is The Walking Building. And you mentioned this earlier. This is a sort of themed about a museum, but it's not really, well, I think it is looking at the role of a museum within a society. But it's a bizarre sort of mobile museum that crawls along the streets. Have I got that right? Andreas's film uh, does depict a museum which crawls down the streets, uh, as you say. <laughs> it actually t- starts you know, with, a, with a historical vision from the 1960s about a, a building um, that sort of might move and respond and change to its environment. Um, and what Andreas has done here is um, posed a bit of a question about the museum of the future and how that might need to respond to the needs of artists in the future. And so taking this idea of the, the mobile museum or the, the building as a kind of organism, um, and it's, it's moving as a sort of computer-rendered uh, object uh, through the cityscape. One presumes <laughs> landing wherever it needs to in order to, to engage some people or, or wherever, maybe wherever it finds room. It's a really interesting idea because you mentioned just now it imagines how a museum could respond to the needs of artists in the future yeah. and I guess what part of the mobile aspect of this piece is a response to what artists might need how might artists need a mobile museum in his world do you think mm. the I think one of the things that Andreas looks at is um, what we already see as networked cultures and the, in a way the non-staticness of of uh, of ourselves even, of art, of objects. So if one sort of follows that to some sort of logical conclusion and thinks about everything being constantly in flux and and in this dynamic movement, then that might generate (laughs) such an absurdity as a mobile museum. But, uh, you know, Andreas also is posited like a a kind of fantasy of of the future as well. So um, you, you give in these fragments or tips of how it might engage or respond to artists but you know unlike a urban city planner it's not a it's not a detailed manifest for 
for how this would actually work. <laughs> it's definitely much more the metaphor and uh, the the ideas that he conjures up with this uh, very, very mm-hmm. intriguing piece. And coming to the United Arab Emirates, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of the role of the museum in general. If you go to the old museums in, say, here in Berlin or in London, and you see them as repositories of artifacts and treasures. You go to the Middle East, and the role of the museum, certainly in places like Abu Dhabi, on Sadet Island, or on Qatar, seems to be a sort of much more glossy affair, and it seems to be a much more responsive to ideas of a modern city, to this an ideal of 21st century urban environment is the museums there. But I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Quite intrigued by this, by the different roles and functions of museums in the West and in the Middle East? Well, I mean, I think, as you say, museums are these um, fantastic repositories of of culture and, and sort of for cultures and, and societies. It, it, you know, it's obviously quite tough to make a, a broad statement um, across our world museums, but it is interesting how um, different museums are constructed to present things or ideas. And, you know, in the, in the sort of mid to late 20th century there's an increasing tendency towards the sort of the scale of museums most often represented through um, spectacular architecture so those two things quickly get those two things quickly get bound up with each other and I, and I, I do find it interesting um, how different cultures will represent both their own histories but also how they articulate those histories in relation to other world histories and to other countries and societies um, the amount of bridging or not that's perceived to be required in order to participate in in uh, a kind of international dialogue. The next work is by Yumna Chala, and this is The Butterfly Already Exists in the Caterpillar. This is also uh, touching on a museum theme because it's part of Yumna's ongoing project, The Museum of Future Memories. Yes, yeah, and a brilliantly poetic title. Yeah, butterflies uh, sort of already in the caterpillar, sort of sig- signifying in a way her talent as a, as a writer. It is very poetic, and you did mention this work is being sort of perhaps reconfigured to work specifically within concrete. Yes, yeah. Um, And so her sort of ongoing project, uh, Museum of Future Memories, yes, it is also museological. But it has to do, I think, with how we, with what the, trying to find out or discover what's at the heart of museums. Um, And we earlier spoke of museums as these vast repositories of objects. Um, and I think what's interesting about Yuna's work is she sort of cuts into that and understands that the objects themselves signify memories. And so what you have is, of course, these great things, but behind the things are their significances. I think Yuna plays with this idea and looks to the future where what you have are, uh, what you have is a, a repository of fragments of memories. Um, so there's, you know, there's no, there's no vases on display. Um, there are sort of snippets of people's lives and in particular she looks at um, um, this area sort of in a fictional um, future uh, in in Norway and uh, how after a Silicon Valley type city has come and then gone will the residents of that city sort of uh, deal with themselves and the idea of of place and their, their, their role within a place. It's a narrative about not only the creation of huge metropolis but then its disappearance the aftermath of its existence yeah through an extremely poetic way yeah so what what's interesting about Yumna's work is in some other artworks you have the idea of a place being built but Yumna's question is then 
what happens after that? <laughs> um, so there's a kind of, um, you know, the future has come and gone and you're in another future. Uh, so there's a, there's a nice sort of set of things that fold in upon each other, you know, um, as you kind of get the hint of in terms of the butterfly and it's the, the potential of that within a kind of chrysalis or caterpillar. Certainly looking over these artists that we've just been talking about, I'm really struck by the, the scale of their ideas, the scale of their vision. We're not, you know, we're talking about civilizations, we're talking about very big themes, we're talking about Chinese communism. All, all, all these themes are very, they're very big ideas, and they're very bold ideas as well. And I think that's another thing that runs through the pieces that we've just been talking about. I was wondering, is there anything that strikes you particularly about Dubai? that makes it feel like this is the right place to take this show? Um, I think in terms of the exhibition and, and taking it uh, to Dubai and presenting it at Concrete, a lot of it makes sense in a way. Dubai is a city that has arranged itself and some of its infrastructure and strategy to be forward-facing, you know, and that, that runs in a way from from an individual level up to a, a governmental level. You know, this is so interesting that the, there'll be the museum... Museum of the Future uh, opening soon, going back to museums again, and it's you know, it's tremendously interesting to me as how, in terms of museum culture and gallery culture, the idea of showing and how you think about showing the future. Um, also, how much updating that will need. <laughs> the Museum of the Future is something in perpetual need of updates, I think. You know, from the outside, the, the city definitely does appear forward-facing in in the sense of you know uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago lots of the big ideas in terms of big infrastructure big buildings big hotels we can terraform the earth even have come to fruition in many ways and sure i suppose lots of other things have have dropped by the wayside but there does definitely seem to be this ethos um, that perhaps still permeates in different ways in terms of uh, imagining the possibilities um, and then realizing them uh, sort of at speed so you know any other city in Europe would have taken 50 years to do that but it's done in five in, in Dubai when they decide to do something it really is done very very quickly indeed there's a there's definitely an energy there and that's why I think that yeah this this is a very interesting group show to be bringing out there and it's great that this is the first traveling show from the Haywards project space to be to be going anywhere and yeah I think I think it's a wonderful juxtaposition mm. I think it's something which both acknowledges and probes the, the show, I think, makes sense, absolutely, traveling to um, concrete. And um, some, you know, I think a lot of people will sort of recognize it absolutely feels, will feel a bit native in a way. But I, I think that the, as, as an exhibition of artwork and with these artists um, engaging all these fantastically broad questions from a variety of broad angles and through different media, there's a richness there that allows you to explore and to get underneath some of, some of these huge topics. Well, it definitely looks like being one of the exhibitions of the year, for sure, at the Al-Sakal Avenue Concrete Space. In the meantime, thank you very much for talking to me today, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in Dubai. Great. And you? Cheers. Thanks very much. And that was Dr. Cliff Lawson talking to me about Adapt to Survive, which is on at Concrete at Al-Sakal Avenue until November the 21st. For more details and information on the program of related events, do check out www.concrete.ae. So, until next time, thanks for listening and following our podcast. And of course, do share and spread the word if you can. It really does all help. And you can also follow us on social media, of course, and share your thoughts about the show and the ideas in it with us there. But in the meantime, from me, it's goodbye and enjoy the show. 
Conversations on the Avenue is written and presented by Arslan Mohammed on behalf of Al-Sakal Avenue. Big thanks to the team at Al-Sakal Avenue and, of course, to Dr. Cliff Lawson for their help and support in putting this episode together.